Our Heavenly Father has a grand design for every life. And that design, that plan, can be summed up in one word, sanctification. Now, the word sanctification might be unfamiliar or maybe a little bit uh, kind of uh, big than we're used to. The truth is our sanctification becomes the foundation for getting our prayers answered, good relationships. A sanctified person is just going to be a better husband or wife or parent. It is the fountain of all happiness. I mean, if you think you're happy now, and uh, if I'm 33% sanctified or 50% sanctified, man, imagine what it's going to be like if we become 100% as we hear this morning. Whole. God says, I want you to be completely, entirely sanctified. It is the basis for ministry success. Sanctification is vital for our lives. God didn't just save us to keep us out of hell. He didn't just save us so that we can make sure we get our name written on the Lamb's book of life. And that certainly would be enough. But his top priority while we are here on this earth is to shape us into the image of his son. And that really is what would be the, uh, the whole point of sanctification. But uh, we're going to, and so we're going to look at that here this morning. However, sometimes people kind of get the idea that, you know, it doesn't take our work at all. But I read a cute story this week, I think, that reminds us how important it is for us to put our back into the thing. Three guys are fishing when an angel appears. First guy says, I've suffered from back pain for years. Can you help me? The angel touches the man's back and he feels instant release. The th second guy points to his thick glasses and begs for a cure for his eyesight. And when the angel tosses the lens into the lake, the man gets 20-20 vision. The angel turns to the third fellow and he instantly screams, don't touch me. I'm on disability. <laughs> don't want to lose my check, you know. <laughs> well, the truth is God wants us to put our back into this thing. Sanctification is not something just going to happen. And so let's ask God for his strength today. Father, we thank you that your purpose in us is to sanctify us and to make us like your dear son. We pray that, Lord, you'll just Give us your grace here this morning, Lord. I so much long for each of us to get this word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's go to 2 Timothy 2 and verse 21, please. Do you have it? We're going to read it out loud together. Read it uh, with conviction, all right? First, excuse me, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 21. This is Paul's epistle to young preacher Timothy. All right, ready, begin. If a man therefore purge himself from these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Now, the context of this, the Apostle Paul alludes to a house that has different vessels, as he calls them here or uh, cups, or bowls, or plates, whatever. And uh, he said, now, if you're going to use that bowl, if you're going to use that cup, it needs to be ready for the master's use, meat and prepared. I mean, who would pick up a, a dirty cup from the you know, counter and drink out of it, unless it's the middle of the night? 
and uh, which I've done before. I remember years ago, I went downstairs and needed a glass of water and just took a cup off the counter and got some water into it and drank it. And what in the world? Man, what was that? And spit it out real quick and come to find out the next morning that my precious wife had put Clorox into that uh, cup. And uh, she was making it meat for the master's use, I guess. But I, uh, I wasn't there yet. But, you know, um, we want to make sure that we don't have cracked cups or we want to be ready. Years ago, as a junior age child, uh, we made our own mugs. And uh, everybody's probably made some piece of pottery in their life. And it's just the most exciting thing in the world when you're doing it. I mean, you get this big old glob of slimy stuff that's sticky and you kind of roll it out and then, you know, you kind of form it and then you put these little handles on it and, um, and then you let it dry and then you paint it and then you fire it. And boy, once that comes out of that cup, I mean, they're ugly as anything, but, uh, but it's your cup and it's ready. That really is a great picture of sanctification. Because when Jesus found us, we were nothing but a big old bunch of mud, just a lump. And Jesus reached down in the pit and he takes us out, but he doesn't want us just to stay a hunk of clay. He forms us and he molds us and he puts us in there and he shapes a little here and then he paints us and then he fires on us. And he makes us ready, meat for the master's use. I want to be sanctified. To be sanctified means simply to be set apart. That's the most uh, uh, easy definition and maybe just an additional thought. Not only just set apart, but set apart for a purpose. And in this case, a divine purpose. Now, throughout Scripture, God sanctified things. He sanctified days. For example, the seventh day. There were other days in Scripture, but one day out of seven is to be set apart for the Lord. It's sanctified. God sanctified things. He took candelabras, he took cups, he took bowls, he took uh, altars, and he sanctified things or even buildings. God also sanctified places like the Holy of Holies. But God also sanctified people. Perhaps the most uh, well-known example is that of the Levite tribe. They were sanctified. They were set apart. They were no different than their red-blooded cousins from Judah or from Dan. But they were sanctified for a unique purpose. This tribe, which never was able to uh, ever hold any land, uh, but they had other things given to them. They were sanctified. The word sanctified, the base of that word means to be holy, or, and it's the same word that we get our word saints from. Now, contrary to uh, what some churches teach, uh, a saint is not one who gets voted in by the a pope or whatever. No, it is all believers are saints. Now, in today's um, verse that we're going to look at, and if you want to turn there, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23, God doesn't want us to have just a halfway job. If you're going to be sanctified, let's get this thing done, and let's get it done right. Let's get it done, body, soul, and spirit. 
And so let's go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, and we're going to read verse 24 as well. And so let's read them together if you would. Ready? Begin. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray your, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. Now, Paul had said in 1 Thessalonians that I always am praying for you. What did he pray for his blessed saints? He prayed that they would be entirely sanctified. There are four facts about entire sanctification in these verses I'd like to share. First of all, the architect of sanctification. Who is the author of our sanctification? Well, very clearly, right out the gate, first part of verse 23, and the very God of peace sanctify you. Remember now, God doesn't just use any words extraneously. These are each word meaningful. The God, the very God, the God of peace sanctifies. The very same God who is the author of peace the very same God who is the giver of peace, the very same God who has given us the Prince of Peace. He desires to sanctify you. He desires to make us like His Son. God has a blueprint in mind as the divine architect. He has an end game. And what is His end game? It is included in the gospel. When God saves us, he is not just trying to get us out of hell. He has a goal in mind. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. Here we find the apostle speaking to the Corinthian church. And he's talking about the gospel. Notice he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. The word gospel means good news. What's the good news? You don't have to go to hell. You don't have to earn this thing. It is by the grace of God. That's good news. But notice verse number two, by which also ye are saved. Now, this is one of those times when if you explored the original language, it might add some additional thought. There's all kinds of good, even if you didn't pick up a Strong's Concordance or go to one of your online websites. But if you will go to, like we recommend, blueletter.org, blueletterbible.org, and you'll go there, you'll find that there's a lexicon, and there's even, not only in addition to word studies, but there is grammar studies in each verse. And this is one of those times when that might be helpful, because the word, ye are saved, is in the present tense, or it literally means ye are being saved. We are being saved. You would say, now wait a second, Pastor, why is that important? And stop. I'm being saved? I thought I've already been saved. Well, actually, we have been saved, but we are also being saved. Very many years ago, I remember some pastor saying this, I've heard it over the years, but let me give it to you. We have been saved, if you'll put that up on the PowerPoint, please. 
we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Hallelujah. The day that I got born again, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I don't have to go to hell. But I am currently being saved from the power of sin. It's grip on me. I can't say that I've got total victory over my sin. I'm being saved. However, hallelujah, thank God, one day we will be saved from the presence of sin. That's a great outline to remember because the gospel doesn't just cover my past. The gospel covers my present. I'm being saved right now. God is sanctifying me. He is saving me. He is changing me. He is delivering me from the power of sin. And there were things that I had such a struggle with early on. And uh, thank God, those have been broken. Why? Because I'm being saved. It's not as big a challenge anymore. Because God is saving me from the power of sin. And hallelujah, someday we're going to be saved from the presence of sin. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's what God is doing. He is performing a work of salvation. I like what one writer said. He said, salvation is a crisis. I come to God and I say, God, I'm a sinner. Oh, God, forgive me. Save me and wash away my sins. Salvation is a crisis. It is a crisis followed by a process. Salvation isn't a process. Some people want to say, I say, are you going to heaven when you die? I'm working on it. Salvation is not a process. It is a crisis. Now, if you are theologically speaking and saying, I'm working on it, then you would say, yes, hallelujah, my past has been saved. My future is secure. And hallelujah, God is saving me right now by his grace. Salvation is a crisis followed by a process. Do not ever think that the gospel just got me saved and my name written in the Lamb's book of life. God, it is a process. God is saving me every day. Thank God every born-again believer is heaven-born. They are heaven-bound. And while I live, I am heaven-blessed. Thank God every born-again believer is heaven-born. And praise God, we are heaven-bound. Praise the Lord. Too many Christians, however, are forgetting that their sanctification isn't making, it's not changing them, it's not making them different, and they have deceived themselves into thinking that it doesn't make any difference the way I live. And some Christians certainly believe some very unique things about their life. A nurse came to a psychiatrist one day and said, doctor, there's a mount." There's a man out here in the office, and he thinks he's invisible. The doctor said, go tell him I can't see him right now. And, um, and that's how strange people are. They just kind of have this idea that, you know, I'm, I don't know. I don't have to do anything about sanctification. Some people think sanctification is behavior. 
modification. Well, the pastor wants us to be better. He wants us to do better. Folks, you can't purify water by painting the faucet. You've got to change what's going on inside. Other people have the idea that sanctification is all negative. I, I get sanctification just means don't do this, don't do this, don't do that. But that's the devil's lie. The devil wants us to think negatively about God, that God is a spoiler. And the Christian life somehow is so straight-laced, there's no joy. I appreciate the testimony that the Matt Check and Mrs. Matt Check gave in Sunday school, how that they went to a wedding last weekend for their son in Texas, and it was a sober wedding. Amen. If you're going to have a wedding, make it a sober one. But that doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's not going to be fun. The uh, professional photographer said, I've done a few sober weddings, but I've never seen one so much fun as this one. I'll tell you one thing, you know what? We can have fun as a Christian. That doesn't mean if we're sanctified, we can't, we can't uh, have a great time. What is sanctification? Sanctification is Jesus. That's what we learned last week. If you want to be sanctified, just keep your eyes on Jesus and let Jesus shine through. When I moved to uh, Stockton, uh, all those years ago now, one of the first places that someone took us to was the Morris Chapel in the University of Pacific. It's an amazing little um, religious uh, building on the campus of UOP. It's very beautiful, very beautiful. And I don't think I'd ever seen such amazing stained glass windows anywhere. When I walked inside, outside, not much to look at, but when you get it inside, that Sun is shining through that. It's just incredible. Biblical scenes, apostles, great uh, Christians of the Bible. It reminds me of uh, one day a Sunday school teacher. One of his students came in and had been recently on a trip with his parents. And the teacher said, You know, what kind of things did you see? And they talked about all the little different things, all the mountains and they visited different uh, cathedrals, beautiful cathedrals. And the teacher said, uh, what was it like? They said, oh, they have all these pictures of saints there in these stained glasses. And the teacher said, well, what is a saint, actually? The student thought for a moment and said, well, I guess a saint is a person that the light shines through. <laughs> And you know, that is exactly what a saint is. When you go into those big cathedrals and you see those saint glasses and you see the sun shining through, it's really the sun that gives that glass all the power. And that's what our life ought to be. First Thessalonians 5.23 says, the very God of peace sanctifies you. God is the architect. He is the author of our sanctification. When I was growing up, uh, we would go visit different homes, and my parents, my dad was a church planter, and so we never really had very much at all. If we ever built up a little bit of money, we'd sell the house, and we'd go to another city and plant a church. So we really grew up, I didn't really realize I was poor, but looking back, I realized, man, we just hardly had a penny to our name most of our life. We never had China, we just had plates, and... Uh, we, uh, we had different kinds. I remember the first Corel plates I saw. I thought, man, that's amazing, a whole stack of those things. But we went to some people's house. They had china. And honestly, for the life of me, I couldn't figure it out because they had these big, beautiful cabinets. 
And they had all this beautiful um, wear in there, some plates. I'd never even seen such a thing. I thought, what do they do with that? You know, we'd never had China, never, ever did it. But then I learned that some people actually, you know, have that China and they have dinner with it. The only thing is my entire life, no matter whose house we went to, I never ate China. I never ate on China one time. Never. I never saw anybody eat on China. We never ate on China. They always sit up in this beautiful cabinet. And I've been to people's houses forever. And I have yet to ever eat on China. I don't think. Now, maybe you have fed me on China. If you have, forgive me. But um, as far as I remember, I have never eaten on China my entire life. And I've got to figure out what in the world, what good is China? I mean, that's a... That's like a Christian that gets sanctified and then just stays up on the shelf looking pretty. I'm just here looking pretty. That's what sanctification is. I'm just, I'm a pretty looking Christian. Man, you're not a pretty looking Christian if you're not out there in the trenches doing something for Jesus. Man, that sanctified people aren't meant to just sit up in a cupboard and look pretty. We're supposed to get out there and do something. God designed us not to be a museum piece. He designed us to go out there and do something. And that's really what sanctification is, a vessel ready for use. Now we find the attainment of sanctification. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. How is sanctification received and attained? It is a complete process. Now in this passage... God is going to introduce to us one of the greatest principles in the Christian life. And that is the principle of the trichotomy of man. It's another big word, sanctification, trichotomy. But it just means three parts. Tri, T-R-I. The trichotomy of man. And notice what he said. I want God to sanctify you wholly. Not just your spirit, not just your soul, not just your body. I want you to be sanctified holy. Man is a trinity, or man is a triune being, as God is. Genesis 1 and verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image. Well, now, who was God speaking with? Who let us make man in our image? Well, that's because God the Father was speaking with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. People say, are there three gods? No, there is one God who has revealed himself and shown himself to be three persons. You say, well, that's confusing. If it's, how can it be not three gods? How can it be just one God? Someone said this about the Trinity. They said, explain it, and you'll lose your mind. Deny it, and you'll lose your soul. Trinity is not something you explain. It's something you embrace. And so God is a triune being who made man in his image. We are made a Trinity. The first part, as it says here, and the order is also important, spirit. God said, we are a spirit. Now, you have to read the context of a verse because God often talks about spirits, or as the King James will say, a ghost. 
a spirit. Sometimes it's referring to a demonic spirit, actually. Sometimes an angel spirit, sometimes the Holy Spirit. But many times, if we're looking at it closely, God is referring to a man's nature. Only humans have a spirit. Plants can be alive, but they don't have a thinking process. They have no soul, as it were, no thinking ability. Animals are both alive and have minds, but they don't have a spirit. There's not going to be any saved gorillas in heaven. There's not going to be any saved dogs in heaven. I know Pastor Mike says he led his pit bull to the Lord, but uh, there's no... uh, The fact is, only humans have a spirit. Now, what does this spirit do? Maybe there's a good example in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. Here, God is talking about all the things that he's got plans for us. And he said, if you'd like to know about it, you're not going to be able to understand it with your eyes, because as it is written, I hath not seen. You're actually not going to be able to figure out heaven with your eyes, neither hath it entered into the heart or the soul. He said, you can't do something, you, you can't figure out godly things with your eye gate, your mind gate. You can't figure it out with your soul, you know, your emotions. He said, these things are prepared by God for them that love him. If you read several verses before and several verses after, you'll find out that God has a different set of eyes. What are those eyes? They are spiritual eyes. The Apostle Paul says this. He said, I serve God, Romans chapter 1, verse 9, I serve God with my spirit. Now, we serve him with our body and we serve him with our mind, but really, our ability to serve God comes because we have a third part that nobody else has. We have a spirit. That's why Jesus, when he was talking to Nicodemus, said this. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And I cut off that little phrase there so that you could see this emphasis. Except a man be born again, he cannot see. You can't see God without being born again. Because when God is born into a spirit, he gives you the ability to see things that nobody else sees. We see spiritual things. And so then what is the spirit? The spirit is an organ, a function, a part of me that acknowledges God, understands sin. And that basically is the, the, the greatest indicator that I have a spirit. I can sense sin. Animals don't sense sin. Plants don't sense sin. But when I, when I sense sin, I become accountable to God. I see. What is my soul? The second part of a man is the soul. Notice what Paul prayed. He said, I pray that your whole spirit and soul, your whole spirit and soul. Now, there are so many verses about that talks about the soul and the spirit being unique. I can tell you that it was years, really, into my uh, Christian life when I began to understand that there is a difference between my spirit and a soul. Sometimes they're just grouped together in one thought called our heart. But my heart is not just uh, my emotions, our soul The soul is the basis of my intelligence, is the basis of my feelings, my sense of humor, my personality. That comes 
from my soul. That comes from my thinking process. It comes from my emoting process. It comes from my decisions that I make. And so God determines that there be a healthy hierarchy. Spirit first, soul second, body last. But so many people have reversed that order and their, their soul is above their spirit. Basically, everything they do is on the basis of what they think or the, what they feel. These would be soulish people. They're not spiritual. They're soulish. Almost all the people you meet tomorrow are soulish. Very few really are spiritual people. There may be some saved people you meet, but even some saved people uh, sadly aren't living a spirit-filled life. They're carnal. But most of the unsaved people we'll be meeting tomorrow, they're all soulish. Now, some are body-predominated, uh, but most are soulish. They're, they wake up in the morning, and what they think, they do. What they feel, they do. They just, it's all about thinking and feeling, thinking and feeling. Those are soulish people. They may even be religious, because there are certain trappings to religions that appeal to the soul. They don't appeal to the spirit, because the spirit says, that doesn't impress me. I'm impressed by the God and His Word and obedience and but soulish people, they, uh, they are, they're all trapped into what they can think, into what they can feel. That's why many people you, you meet and you say, why don't they get it? That's because they, their spirit's not awakened. They're just thinking. They're just living in their soul. They're not spirit-led people. Then there is a third part, and that is the body. Now, some people, sadly, don't answer God's call in their spirit, and frankly, they don't think either. And every day the news comes to us and we hear about people who just totally let their body take over and they lose their brains. They are not thinking. I just saw some little video clip yesterday about some guy in Sacramento, some road rage guy, started ramming into people, then got out of the car, jumped on top of the car, started stomping on it. And the police were standing around the guy just looking at him like, what are you doing? And the guy fell off the car, and they took him off. But that guy was not in his spirit for sure. He was not in his soul. His body had every juice in his body, every hormone in his body had taken over. He was a body-led person. Now, that doesn't mean our body is evil. For example, in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1, God says the body houses is the house of the soul and the spirit. God says a believer, Romans 12, 1, needs to present his body to the Lord so that the spiritual part of me can express my feelings about God. For you, you look at me, and the only way you know what my spirit is thinking and what my spirit is doing is because of what my body is doing. My actions tell you what's going on in my spirit. God wants us to give our bodies to the Lord. He wants us to give our souls to the Lord. And obviously, He wants us to connect with Him through our spirit. With our bodies, we know the world beneath us. With our souls, we know the world around us. And with our spirits, we know the world above us. I'll say that again. With our bodies, we know the world beneath us. With our souls, we know the world around us. And with our spirits, we know the world 
above us. Now, God wants to sanctify us 100%. Now, let's just say that you are a 10 on a scale of 10 in your body. I mean, I know that before you, there's an example that's pretty close to that. And uh, you're looking at a body that is a, well, no, it's not a 10, and uh, for sure. But let's say you are a 10. I mean, absolutely a 10 on a scale of 10, your body. I mean, just absolutely a physical specimen. But let's say you're a dingbat, okay? You're just a little crazy. And let's say that you don't have any spiritual walk at all. So at best, you're only one-third complete. You might be a 10 on a 10 scale physically, but the minute you open your mouth, everyone's like, ooh, man, you know, whoa, there's a little space for rent up there. And, uh, but, and no spiritual walk at all. Now let's say that you are a 10 on a scale of 10 body, and you are a 10 on a scale of 10 mentally. I mean, you are brilliant, you're engaging, you're wonderful conversationalist, you're bright, you're, you just, you're just one of those kind of people that's just amazing. I mean, just wow. You got this beautiful body, you have a wonderful personality, you're bright, you're intelligent, you're just, I mean, you are together, you're well-read. Man, you, I mean, you're just an absolutely unbelievable person. You're still only at 66% if you don't have a spirit. If your spirit is dead, if it's lost, you can be a brilliant person, wonderful, but we're not sanctified. God said, here's the way I want it to work. I want your body to be sanctified, I want your mind to be sanctified, and I want your spirit to be sanctified. Too many Christians get the idea that God's only concerned about my spiritual sanctification, but God's also concerned about my body and my mind or my soul. Notice this statement, if you'll put up, please. When our bodies are right, we're healthy. When our souls are right, we're happy. And when our spirits are right, we're holy. That right there is the summary of this message. God wants our bodies to be right, and in so doing, we're healthy. God wants our soul to be right, and in so doing, we're happy people. But mostly, He wants our spirits to be right, and that's when we're holy. Andrew Murray once said, it is God is ready to, the great um, teacher and Bible scholar and devotional writer, God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded to Him. God, we can trust God to sanctify us, body, soul, and spirit. The accomplishment of sanctification. Let's look at the last part of verse 23. I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's job to protect and preserve the good work that he began. If God did not carry on his work in us, we would be a disaster. Our Christian life would be in shambles. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit working in the human spirit as a result of prayer and yielding. I get the Holy Spirit working in my life because I'm praying, God, work in my life. I have been praying all week long, oh God, Holy Spirit, fill me, use me, bless me, change me, touch me. God, Holy Spirit, I have invited the Holy Spirit to make me different. But it's not enough 
to just ask him. We've got to yield to his work. When we yield to his work, then God can do a work in us. Now, that sounds a lot easier than it is because the Christian life is often challenging. You get saved and you're feeling good and you're saying, man, this is so good, this is so fun, I'm so buzzed, man, I'm so excited about God. And then all of a sudden, a month or two or three or four down the line, all of a sudden that temptation starts coming in. Things kind of even out in our light a little bit, you know, and we kind of lose the passion of, you know, half needing God. And if we're not careful, we're going to fall right back into the same old junk. And so we need to say, oh God, I want to do what's right. And so I wake up in the morning and my spirit says, I'm going to go to church today. And the soul said, uh-uh, you're going to go to the lake. You're going to go to the lake today. My spirit says, no, we're going to church. Soul says, no, we're going to the lake. It's at that crucial moment, prayer and yielding, prayer and yielding. Oh, God, give me power. Oh, God, I yield to the spirit. Because if you let the soul take over, it's going to be a disaster. The spirit says, let's pray. The soul said, "Uh uh-uh, I need more sleep. The spirit says, get up, poking you. Get up, get up. Soul said, I need my sleep. No, you need to talk with God. When we allow our soul to influence us, we become carnal. When we allow our body to influence us, we become carnal. The key is to allow God to preserve us blameless or to conserve the results. To let God do the work in us. After Pauline and I had first been married, you, the church, blessed us with a trip to New York City. It was our, my 30th anniversary as pastor, and we, uh, they knew that I liked the tennis, and so they gave us tickets to the U.S. Open. Among the other things we did at New York City, we did several tours, went and saw Statue of Liberty, walked around um, Times Square, and also went and strolled there on Fifth Avenue. And there in front of the Rockefeller Center in Midtown Manhattan, there is a sculpture, a sculpture of the ancient Greek god. Put that up there. That's Atlas. And Atlas is holding the world on his shoulders. This thing is huge, 40 feet plus tall, many tons of concrete and steel. And I've thought about that picture before, that uh, Atlas, even as strong as he was, even as great as God that he was, supposedly, he was struggling with the weight of the world on his shoulders. And that's what it seems like a lot of Christians are. I mean, the whole weight of the world is on their shoulders. Man, they're, they're trying to make head in their home, you know, their houses, their marriage, their kids, education, their finances, their retirement, their business, education, you name it. And the whole weight of the world's on their shoulder. And they're just busy. Their body and their soul is just working overtime. And the spirit is just famished because they're not building up with the, with the word of God and the things of God. God wants us to say, you know what? That world doesn't belong on your shoulders. That world belongs on the shoulders of Jesus Christ. 
And he's got the whole world in his hands, like the old song says. The accomplishment of my sanctification is squarely laid on the shoulders of a big Savior. And then finally this morning, the assurance of my sanctification. The architect, God. The attainment comes through understanding the process of a holy body, soul, and spirit. The accomplishment comes when we allow Jesus to do it. And finally, the assurance. Look at verse 24. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Only God can accomplish the good will of, or the will of his good pleasure towards us. Faithful is he who calls you, who will also do it. I'm glad God is working in me. Look what it says in Philippians 2 and verse 13. We mentioned this last week. For it is God. This verse absolutely is a transforming verse. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. Now I wish that my only problem was doing what I know I'm supposed to do. I wish that was my only problem doing what I know I should do. But here is often a bigger problem for me. I don't even want to do it. I don't even have a desire to do things that are holy. I just, I didn't, that's just, you'd say, well, pastor, folks, in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. My flesh doesn't desire holy things. I mean, if I have a choice to do this or something spiritual, my flesh almost every time wants to do something that is unspiritual. But God works in me to both to will. He puts inside of me a will to do it. Hallelujah. I didn't even have a willpower until God worked in me. And then not only gave me the willpower, but he gave me the strength to do it. It is God who works God is working on me. God is working in me. He is the one who does the work, and he does it so good. He is a professional at what he does. Where we live, we have lots of critters, pests. You name it, we've had it. We've had squirrels and otters in our little river there. We've had uh, a female turkey named Brian. Um, <laughs> We just thought it was a turkey, and then we finally found out it was a hen, and we'd already named it Brian. But anyway, we've had, uh, we've had every kind of an, a dog, uh, coyotes, uh, quail, uh, eagle, or not eagle, uh, owls, uh, hawks. Uh, I mean, uh, that's just a small list. I guarantee there's all kinds of things. We have a lot of little pests. But the pestiest of all are squirrels. Now, when I was growing up, I never really had squirrels around, and uh, I always thought they were cute, little fuzzy tails, little cute little hands, they hold things, and they eat them. Squirrels are very cute. I do not think that anymore, and uh, they are very destructive. I do not like fuzzy-tailed rats, and uh, basically is what I think, and I, and I have tried everything to get rid of squirrels. I've even hid out there with camel gear on, and I've, uh, I'm just looking at them, and uh, there's a few of them I've even named, because they look at me, and they just, I, can, I know they're grinning at me, and uh, they just wait till I 
pull up. Well, anyway, I have tried to get rid of those squirrels. I know so I'm going to be in big trouble here. We've tried everything. We even, they even said if you'll take uh, dry ice and put it in their little tunnel, it'll, it'll put them to sleep. And they'll go nai-nai. And, uh, but it didn't work. Nothing works with those squirrels. I tell you what, they are demon-possessed little fuzzy-tailed animals. I don't know what they are, but I, those things are terrible. Finally, we called the professionals, and the pest control came out, and boy, I'm telling you what, they know how to do their job. And I'll tell you one thing, I look at my life, and I look at all the pests that are in there. I look at all the vices and all the junk that goes on in my mind and my spirit, and I tell you what, I cry out to the professional. Oh, God, only you can work in me to both will and to do your good pleasure. It is God who sanctifies me. It is God's plan to sanctify us, body, soul, and spirit. And so what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to ask God to sanctify my body. I believe every believer needs to do what they can and have a good, healthy body. I think you ought to exercise regularly. I think you ought to try to eat as good as you can and mainly just eat a lot less sugar and processed foods. And I think you need good rest and a good time of diversion. You need good friends. If you're married, have lots of sex. And I mean, folks, you ought to be, you ought to have a healthy, just a healthy physical life. That's very important. But it's not enough to simply be healthy because uh, we also want to be happy. And that's where I believe you need to exercise your mind. Read. Leaders are readers. Read good things and push your mind uh, to trying new things and, you know, stay active as long as you possibly can into your years. And Pauline tells me about doing puzzles, you know, it's good for your brain. I mean, I don't care, folks, what you do, but keep your mind active. Have good relationships and uh, just... Folks, I believe we ought to be sanctified in our body. I believe we ought to be sanctified in our minds and our soul. But we also ought to be sanctified in our spirit. Oh, God, I want to grow. I want to grow. How have you grown in the last year spiritually? How have you sanctified? You might have worked on your body to, you know, I'm going to eat less of this or more of this. I'm going to, you know... I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm purposing, you know, encourage my friendships or whatever, but spiritually, how have we grown? The way to grow is to just keep your priorities right and usually means making the hard choice. Usually the faith choice is the hard choice. If you don't want to witness, witness anyway. You don't want to read your Bible, read it anyway, because the hard choice is usually the spiritual choice because the things that I want to do. God said, well, those are the things that seemeth right unto a man, but th those ends come to death. They seem right to my soul or seem right to my body, but my spirit is saying, don't do it. Only God can sanctify this life. Charles Colson said, and I quote, psychiatry, properly administered, can turn a schizophrenic bank robber into a mentally healthy bank robber. <laughs> A good teacher can turn an illiterate criminal into an educated criminal, but they're still bank robbers and criminals. Folks, my sanctification isn't just about getting a new mind and getting a new plan for my life. 
My sanctification is when Jesus comes in and changes me, makes me holy, makes me healthy, and makes me happy. Only Jesus can do that. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here.